The following is a Feltnout production. To find out more, visit feltnout.co.uk. Ladies and gentlemen, my friends, welcome to episode three of Time Travel. Uh, today we're going to be talking about World War Two and Tyneside in the Northeast during the Second World War. Um, um, uh, and I have a pretty personal connection here, uh, Mike, because um, I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you tell, a little tell me a story, interesting Raul. story that always makes me smile. Uh, when, when the war broke out, there was a, 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 a young. A young Geordie man, his name was John Astley, right? Uh, he was just starting to become a shipbuilder, and he was he was in love with his childhood sweetheart, uh, Joyce. And the war came, and their relationship, unfortunately, came to an abrupt end. John had to go and fight, uh, and he fought in Turkey, Italy, um, fought in, 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 in Morocco as well, I believe. Uh, it, was, it was even part of a famous battle where... where he was stuck, and, and, and Bernard Montgomery's regiment had to come and rescue his regiment from the, the Germans. Uh, Joyce, meanwhile, met, went to build tanks in Catterick. If you don't know Catterick, a big military garrison there now. Also now where Newcastle Brown Ale gets made, interestingly Sacrilege. enough. Sacrilege. Sacrilege. You know, Newcastle Brown Ale had the, the UNESCO World Heritage European Union protection. It was like champagne. It could only be called Newcastle Brown Ale if it was made in Newcastle. If it was made anywhere else, it was just sparkling brown ale, I guess. But it wasn't. It couldn't be called Newcastle Brown Ale. And then Heineken, when they bought it, made a, a lot of financial contributions to the EU requested that they be able to move it and then that's when they moved it to Catterick and that's why it now tastes shit and you should drink <laughs> Wylam Ale anyway John comes back after the war and he's, he's all healthy um, but while he's been away he's had an affair with a French Duchess now only John knows if she's actually a duchess, but he seems to be under the impression she's a duchess, but maybe like the last episode duchess, with, those, with those Latin Americans <laughs> not being able to see the boat. She was just yeah. French. Yeah. He yeah. assumed yeah. that meant she was a queen, right? Yeah. He'd probably never met a French woman before. <laughs> He'd never left Wildsend before, had John Astley. And he's cycling to the ferry, the port, to sail away to France to go see his girlfriend, uh, or his fling that he's had. In, in France, um, they've been writing letters. And on his way there, he bumps into Joyce, his old childhood sweetheart's dad. And he says, oh, John, good to see you back from the war and whatnot. All healthy, all with your limbs. I don't think he said all with your limbs. I'm paraphrasing, but I'm sure that's what he meant. Uh, where are you off to? And he said, oh, I'm off the port. I go sail to France to see a, a girl I met while I was out fighting. And he goes, oh, okay, that's, that's nice, that's nice. And then Joyce's dad says, well, if you're wondering, Joyce's returned from building the tanks in Catterick. Sure, she'd love to see you. John turns his bike round, cycles home, gets speaking to Joyce shortly after, marries Joyce, and they live happily ever after till John's death in 2008 ish. Uh, and sometime in the 70s, 80s, um, Joyce has retired. Very bored, she goes into a, a local corner shop owned by one Ron Coley, or Rakesh Coley is his proper name. Yeah. And he, he asks her how retirement is. Um, and you got to bear in mind, you know, back then when, when he bought the shop, some people, I know for a fact, weren't too happy about one of them, an Asian man, owning his shop. But he, he says from day one, John and Joyce were as nice oh. as you could ever imagine. And 
We don't know. Maybe they were just astoundingly kind people. Maybe I'm sure John had met a lot of, of brown folk when he was fighting in Morocco and Turkey, right. no doubt, and had quite an open mind with that sort of stuff. But Joyce is telling him how boring she finds retirement, now she's got no purpose, and so on and so forth. And she, she, she's really hating it. And he goes, well... Would you like to start working here? You just do like three days. At this point, he's got he's got two shops now, Aye. including one on the city walls that were once sieged in 1644. And he's got a, a second child on the way. And to this day, he says she's the most trustworthy member of staff he'd ever had, more so than me or my siblings, <laughs> did my dad say that. And then he, she was so trustworthy, he started leaving the bands with her. Left my older sister, my older brother, by the time I was born... They just were grandar and grandma. So they're just like, like they're just the money stopped trading hands, and you know my yeah. grandad used to sit with me and watch Newcastle United while he drank his brown oh, ale sorry. in the old red crates, and, and he was just me grandad. That's all I Did seen you know him this? as. Uh, uh, that really chimes, mate, because um, sometimes somebody might not be a blood relative, but they're more of a grandad. Well, with respect, I love my parents and I absolutely adore them. They're phenomenal people as well. But they were working so hard in the shops and yeah. that that I, I probably saw Joyce and John more than I saw Gogi and Run. But that means Soppy loves love, mate, isn't it? Exactly that. And, you know, in terms of the influences of my life, it was Grandad John who sat with us and explained what Newcastle United meant, who the football teams were. Um, and do you remember the Red Crates? That's a part of Geordie history. See, me growing up the corner shop, it's Lee, do you remember the Red Crates a Brown Ale? So once upon a time, what the oldens would do is they'd get a crate of 12 brown ales and a red crate, and then they'd put all the empty bottles back in the red crates, and then they'd take them back to my dad's shop, and they'd get 12 quid, and my dad would give them back to the brewery. And this is why we need to bring it back from Catrick, the bastard. It's environmentally friendly. But, uh, yeah, I always remember him drinking that. And we've got one red crate left in that shop, and I tell my dad I want it. It's my little piece of memorabilia. It's my little piece of grandeur. Um, But, yeah. So if he hadn't have... It's like one of those sliding door moments. If I hadn't have bumped into uh, Joyce's dad, Joyce's dad, the rest would not have been history, so to speak. But, but the thing is, the, the second if Montgomery had not saved them, the rest would not have been history. If Joyce the, hadn't wandered into the corner shop that day, she was retired. She wouldn't, might not be my grandma. That's, we're going into multiverse theory. Now. Multiverse theory. Well, I've got a really good thing yeah. about that, but we'll get on that in another yeah, episode. The, the, you know, I love because we, um, we could go into the kind of the. The kind of the, the macro and micro history of the northeastern world, but I'm enjoying you know shooting the fat over like uh, shooting the fat, chewing the fat, shooting the fat, something else, which is a different podcast altogether, uh, <laughs> different demographic. Um, my grand, because obviously you get from your grandparents, don't you? Now it's very me, popular during COVID was shooting the fat. Anyway, anyway, uh, <laughs> me on me mum and dad's side, on me side again, on me mum's side, me granddad was in the reserved occupation. Uh, so he worked in industry because obviously the the, the northeast Tyneside was um, you know the arsenal. Of, I know America was the arsenal of democracy, wow. but we were like a mini version of it. We created the Vickers, the tanks, long at Vickers. We had the shipyards. My granddad actually went on to work at Vickers uh, after the war, um, and on top of that, I believe it was Dan Jackson in the Northumbrians who said, uh, "If if the Battle of Waterloo." Or oh, the war against Napoleon was won in the cafes and beer halls of Eton, then you could easily argue that World War Two was won in the shipyards right. and the regiments of the North East. On that beautiful lead-in, right? Um, I've been reading about uh, this bloke um, who is uh, Phillips O'Brien. He's a professor of um, history at uh, St Andrews. And his take on World War Two is that 
his opening line of his book, which blew me away, is there were no decisive battles in World War Two. What a contentious thing to say, because he said it was all about build, it was all about ship and aircraft construction. That's where that's where the money went. So also about Hitler doing too much cocaine towards the end of the war. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? Go- Invade Russia. It was build these concerts. It's well, a lot I mean, of resources. Goering had a coke in his field marshal's baton because he was a morphine addict from an air crash he'd had earlier. And Hitler, by the end, he was getting injected with uh, by Dr. Morell. He's, he's quack. Uh, Austrian bulls testicle extract. Uh, well, you can probably get that in a freaking shop on Jasmine Road now. But, you know, back then, it was quite it was quite out there during the war. But anyway, back me, back me granddad. So that granddad helped build ships and stuff. So he, he stayed in the UK. It was in the home guard. Um, but it wasn't like Dad's army. It tended to be a lot of younger, healthier men who were just in reserved occupations and wanted to do their bit. Um, but me, when my granddad was away on home guard duty, my grand beatty, um, he'd filled a, <laughs> a rubber sheath full of lead to make a truncheon in case the Germans landed. Now I'm thinking, can you imagine the uh, crack SS parachute division landing on the field in Lobby Hill near where my grand lived and my grand beatty running out there? <laughs> And I slip her, so with a card. I'll have actually I think I would have put the money on me grand beat it to be honest. But uh, <laughs> for me Raji Raji Gran, uh, she wants chase she chased some skinheads off with a brush um in the seventies and that's when she wasn't in a prayer. She built a statue of like that woman who uh, hit the fascist with the oh, handbag yeah, well, that was, in Sweden. That was me grand, oh yeah, yeah. Um well my grand actually my granddad who um didn't go away in the war. He told me that, you know, we're talking about um, extremism. Now, the Northeast is never, extremes have never taken off like anywhere else in the country, like the black shirts. And my granddad told a tale of um, when he was a young lad, teenager, late teens, um, some of Moses lot was speaking in, in uh, Newcastle. And um, I think it was on uh, Blackett Street. And there was, uh, they were giving this Jewish lad who'd gone to protest, they were giving him a hiding. So my granddad and his mates jumped in and gave the black shirts a hiding. And my granddad said, we knew them, he said they were, they were rangans. He said the ones who joined the black shirts were like the local knackers and local rangans. Yeah. Uh, so not a lot changes. Um, not a lot changes not indeed. Not a lot changes. Um, but another thing about that, and now was your, I bet your grand, I bet your grand and granddad, this happened to them. My ex-wife, um, her gran, and my grand both mentioned this same tale, a German plane flew up the tank because they're always doing nuisance raids trying to hit where and it flew up but they tried to hit the tank bridge and it missed hit something on the quayside but this one lone German pilot who whatever the odiousness of the, the cause he must have had balls like coconuts is to fly up the tank this plane by yourself trying to hit the tank bridge and he flew off um, over the centre of Newcastle and my grand said he was so low you could see the pilot's face um, and both me grands um, well obviously can I just say that the different people, both me grands. I'm, I'm not from one of these pit villages. Um, Sunderland, anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But um, my other granddad um, went away to fight. And I could do a whole podcast on um, what he got up to. Uh, but my dad remembers him being pulled at the coalhouse. He'd been on leave and he'd overstopped his leave. Because he obviously thought, what, like, on the day he sent us back to the front. So he stayed a few days longer. And my dad remembers the MPs, the Red Caps, coming into the house, opening the call house door and pulling my granddad out and taking oh. back <laughs> Well, that was it. Uh, interesting with regards to the air raids um, you mentioned there. We'll come back to two things, the air raids and your grandma and just what local people had to do, like, to contribute to the war. So, like, my grandma had to build the tanks and Gatry, but what I 
Catterick, sorry, but when I asked her, like, how, what she, like, how, what her experience was like in the war when I was a kid, it was not the response I was expecting. She was like, oh, it was quite fun, really. And I was like, yeah. what? And she goes, well, what you have to bear in mind is, uh, particularly where I was sort of a little bit more in the country, I mean, as well as the planes running out of petrol by the time they got here, um, most of them didn't really come to the areas of the country where I was and didn't really know where they were. But also, like, the one time we did have an air raid nuke gas that I can remember, we just all went and hid in a tunnel under the uh, the town moor and drank gin and had a really nice time. <laughs> but you see, for the most part, she seemed to have an all right experience at the war. And this is, uh, I think, interesting because you, ha- you have a lot of facts here in terms of, like, so 44,000 children were about... I read this in a book called Tyneside in War, uh, came from the Chronicle. Uh, I forget who the authors are, but it said 44,000 children were evacuated to Cumberland, North Yorkshire, and Northumberland. Within a month, 11,000 had returned, as it seems the bombers didn't quite make it to Newcastle. There was a lot of planned raid tests, but not too much happened. There were like quite a few serious raids, but they stopped quite quite shortly. And interesting enough, we in COVID, they always said that was our war for people who might have... fucking wasn't a war, but anyway... We needed masks and vaccine passports to get anywhere. Back then, bands carried gas masks and you needed a gas mask to get in the cinema and most entertainment. If you were living in the Northeast at the time, you couldn't go into a comedy show if you didn't have a gas mask. Now, do you remember? Mad anti-maskers going around <laughs> and saying, it's not real, it's not real. These masks will it's give you the lizards. 5G. It's the lizards. But I, you I know, think. can you imagine, like, I thought it was pretty dystopian watching people with, like, and I wasn't an anti-masker, yeah. but I was dystopian watching people oh, who were wearing masks in a comedy club and just not seeing them laugh, but sort of hearing them. But imagine that in gas masks. You'd, that'd be horrifying. Well, It'd be like a movie written by Stanley Kubrick or something. Well, I don't know if my father would be taken off um, social services, but... The bomb, do you know where uh, it's gone now as well? It shows your age, but Manners, there used to be the Manners Cinema. Remember the Manners Multiplex? They knocked it down. It's student accommodation now. Oh, uh, Warner Bros. Aye, well, well that's right. Warner Bros, Chiquitos and Deep Pan. Whatever happened to Deep Pan? <laughs> exactly. That's the biggest thing we've lost in when, Northeast history. Before, we need that back. This is where my oldest comes in. Before they built the Warners, right until about 1980, the ruins of the um, Manners Good Stepper were still there because that got hammered during the war. And my dad lived up in Deckham. And he remembers his mom and them letting him sit on the coal house roof, the same one my granddad got pulled out of, to watch the show because they hit a train full of sugar. Um, Did that burn it like burned a... burned oh like a mofo. It burned. And basically, if the Germans had... To quote me granddad, if the Germans would come back the next night, the Newcastle was lit up like Blackpool. So they could have flattened it. Flattened but it. they didn't. But apparently the firefighters were waiting through treacle and toffee... Because <laughs> it had just made toffee, hadn't it? If you set fire a load of wagons um, of sugar. So, I mean, my father re- remembers watching that. Um, and they had the big anti aircraft guns in a ring around Newcastle. And the one at Lobby Hill was called Big Bertha. So, apparently, lots of, there was lots of Luftwaffe reconnaissance uh, on the northeast. There was a lot of targets they had the Time Bridge, the yeah. Spiller Building, the Biker Bridge, the Docks, Elswick Works, the Oil Tanks at Jarrah, Swan Hunters and Walls and Slipway, New Burn Steelworks, and finally Brands Peth. Come ovens. I don't know if I've wrote that right. <laughs> that might have been an autocorrect. Come ovens. What are the come ovens? That's a different show again. That sounds terrific. Whatever that was, but the rest, you know, I know, I know, sort of roughly what they were like. The first raid was on the second of July in nineteen forty. It was a lot damaged, thirteen dead and one hundred and twenty-three injured. Uh, and a bomber seeking to destroy the Tyne high-level bridge hit the Spillers factory. A serious raid followed uh, on the 18th of July. Serious damage, three dead, many injured. Uh, emboldened by these raids, the Luftwaffe sent 300 planes 
And if only they just came on the sugar day, like was, that episode of that The Simpsons, and blew it up. Have you ever watched the movie The Battle of Britain? There was a. Um, they came across from Norway and did they get a spank in the Luftwaffe? Yes, this is it. This they is it. So did. apparently they flew over 300 planes attempting to smash the city, but the local any fighter squadrons, the Northeast fighter squadrons, shot down 75 planes in 75 was it minutes. The Germans actually called it Black And Thursday, that was for me, you know, was that where the football chat yeah. Schola from Fernham? Yeah, yeah. Schola from Fernham shot them down. They got a real spank in the 75 planes, a plane per minute in 75 minutes. They, that is hella impressive. Did, well, the thing is that the, the jury, this is and apparently crazy. that's where my grandma sort of was like well they just didn't really give it a go because after that and I think this is where my grandma primarily remembers because that warned the Luftwaffe don't try this again and which for the most part they didn't no, they stopped didn't. coming back after there was a couple of minor raids on the 13th and the 16th of September mainly affecting my old stomping grounds Heaton um, but nothing really until the, the 10th of April 1941 where you had a fair few raids in April affecting Heaton, Biker and South Shields and then apparently the 1st and 2nd of September were the most severe raids fires for days after in Newcastle City Centre South Shields Town Centre was apparently the, flattened my, I worked with a bloke who was as a child and remembered it but I remember last two years ago now I'm losing track the, the worst one was on was it May the 3rd 41 uh, the worst casualties were had was at North Shields, there was the Wilkinson Lemonade Factory, and it was being used as a, um, a shelter by local families, had a big deep cellar, and just total bad luck, um, the bomb actually hit the shelter, and I think it was over 107 people killed, um, mainly women and kids, which was awful. But also remember as well, me ex-wife's granddad worked on the shipyards, and he remembers uh, a bomb hitting uh, Biker High Street, where where he lived and he said he never wants to um, he said he's never seen there'd been a queue apparently for the butchers or a shop and the bomb hit because the woman didn't want to lose their place in the queue so they stayed in the queue because your chances you usually when the siren went you were, you, the chances of anything bad happened were pretty slim but apparently this day it did and the people in the queue got and he said it was like just a charnel house it was absolutely because oh, oh. all the lads from the yards ran up to see if the families were okay and he said he never wants to see the lake again. He was like, he's like seen from hell. Oh, um, well, that was it. Um, the summer of 1942, there was a big raid on Teesside with a bit of damage in Newcastle. But for the most part, by 1942, the worst was over for the Northeast um, because the Nazi war machine had other things to commit to. Lots to of east, Battle yeah. of Britain, off to the East. And then Hitler took too much cocaine and basically decided he was going to build concentration camps, invade Russia, his greatest ally, yeah. and somehow take the, the Russians in their conditions in the snow. And we were, for the most part, sort of, uh, of left alone. Um, but coming to that, they had a lot of kids from there come up from... London actually evacuated to Newcastle to live there. Now, two things I just want to quickly touch upon on these kids moving around, which I find two very interesting stories. Um, um, there's a news cutting, a news cutting, a newspaper cutting in this book, uh, Tyneside at War, where a child was evacuated somewhere in the south. Uh, and at the house, the adults caring for him, they asked him if he'd like any biscuits, to which he replied, Biscuits? What I want is beer and chips. That's what I get at home. <laughs> and the headline was uh, Geordie Kids <laughs> want beer and chips. That really made me chuckle. But there's another thing. changed. Hasn't not it? Yeah. in Tyneside at War, but it was an article I read recently. I lifted it directly from uh, Mr. Jackson's Twitter uh, on the BBC about uh, in Tynemouth and the coast. There was a hostel for Jewish girls from the Kinder Transport. I remember seeing that as well. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, they, they, they were refugees, uh, young girls, uh, and a jeweler at the time. I think he was of Jewish heritage. He, he had like a Jewish sounding name, but I can't confirm. It. I don't think the article said he put up twelve girls at a very expensive cost himself for quite some time. Um, and I think that's just a wonderful, wonderful little piece well, of history that, that, on, that perhaps not a lot of people know it about. May not have been there, but I remember little things make you realise what the difference was between like you know our country, you know, and Nazi Germany. Um, is that some of the people, the kids who came across on the kinder transport were waiting um, at customs in, in this country. And the customs guy came out, it wasn't on a strike, it was not like now, and he guided the Jewish kids under the awning so they wouldn't get wet. Oh. Come on, kids, come on in, don't stand out there in the rain. And when they left Germany, they were just used to this, you know, they'd seen the brutalisation that was going on. And the woman said that one small act of kindness, kindness stayed with her till she was an elderly lady. If you're coming from Kristallnacht, it would, wouldn't it? Um, but just, 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 just coming back there, uh, the, the, the Jewish refugees here, because uh, I remember I had a kid's grandma, a kid in my school year, his grandma come in and, and told her she was a Jewish refugee herself. Uh, very interesting here. Um, Reflection of it, because back then people didn't really know how, at least on our side in the UK uh, and in Britain and amongst the Allies, we didn't know how serious um, the anti-Semitism of the Nazi party was to the degree where when these Jewish refugees come over, even though we're aware of Kristallnacht and all these things going on, we, this grandma was sort of treated as a spy. She had to register, like, uh, you know, like, a, you know, football hooligans get banned. Yeah. They've got to be in, like, the police station. And she wasn't allowed near the beach in case anyone was coming to send her messages. Uh, and they thought the Jewish refugees, they kept sort of, like, tabs on to make sure they weren't spies. And uh, it's war is war. you got to do these well, sorts I of things. I suppose people didn't have, you know, it was so terrible what was going on. They couldn't imagine because you, know, you just wouldn't you wouldn't know you wouldn't, and like was, as well even with that there will still be people who will take advantage of that do you know what I mean there yeah. would have been people who would, might have come over posed as refugees oh, and then ab- would have been ab- spies absolutely um, they um, ended up quite a foreman commando units from the Jewish uh, German speakers yeah uh, t- two interesting facts about that again like uh, is, is Bensham as we know it you don't know oh, you were going to mention this. Bencham, I'm intrigued with Poland. What was the link? Basically, Bencham wouldn't exist if, if Nazi Germany had not uh, invaded Poland. Because, um, well, it wouldn't exist as we know it, right? Because Bencham is a heavily Jewish area. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, if you were to Israel and you talk to Israelis, are you meet an Israeli in like a backpack and like, I have Newcastle, never heard of it. Bencham, oh, Bencham, yeah! yeah, 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 yeah. Like, they, Bencham is like an, mm. a Oxford for them almost. Like, it's a very, very big Jewish educational. There, yeah, big, yeah. Like, big educational institution amongst uh, the Israeli people and the Jewish people. But it wouldn't exist uh, if it wasn't for World War II because... Like, let's just quickly just describe Bensham, because if you don't know Bensham, there's a high Orthodox Jewish population there, but they have, like, it, it, it integrated with the with the Geordie Rajis there, and it's a very peculiar combination. Like, I remember as a kid seeing, you know, somebody in one of them Orthodox Jewish hats pulling a wheelie, smoking a roll-up on a BMX, <laughs> just thinking, what the hell is going on here? But the reason they're there is because when, after the Kristallnacht, the Jewish refugees who sort of... Uh, more accurately discerned which way the wind was blowing or could get out because some of yeah. these people, you know, may have had older Jewish relatives that they had to care for and so on and so forth. Uh, somebody who chose to stay is somebody I've got tattooed on my back, Victor Franklin, and lived through Holocaust psychotherapist. But nonetheless, the ones who did leave, they came from Eastern Europe, from Poland, Czechoslovakia, from Austria, on boats, and they ended up on the east coast of England. So you have these small little population hubs of Jewish people on the east coast of England, including Bensham, Grimsby, Lincolnshire, 
and where that's they landed, yeah. where they all landed. That's where they came I'd, from. I, I was obviously we, we all know the, the, the strong Jewish heritage in that area, but I didn't really know the kind of story behind it. But Ge- I'm thinking now about the Geordie Raj element that we were talking about earlier. It's just come to us now. We're talking. Hang on. Let me, um, me granddad, who was the one who was pulled out the um, the coal house for like. Be, you know, mm-hmm. overstay in his leave. Imagine me, grand. I look at a cross between little stocky Geordie, Clark Gable Mush. He looked like Arthur of Piggy Blinders. Um, well, that was one thing I noticed about like the home guard that they set up in the Northeast, which I found peculiarly interesting because they ran out of uniforms. So the home guard in the Northeast just looked like the mob. Yeah. They're just walking around in suits with <laughs> <but laughs> rifles. Yeah, and top rad- <laughs> Looks like Goodfellas or something. Well, I'm me, like, me what is this? I didn't find out after he passed away that he'd been a right um, little hard nut, he'd been a boxer. Before the army, he'd been a boxer in the army. Um, and when he was a bit of a tinker when he was away, he, again, was in trouble with military police because he went fishing with captured German stick grenades and all that. They called them Tatey Mashers. <laughs> and my granddad found a crate of German Tatey Mashers. And him and his mates uh, from the Northumberland Fusiliers, uh, I think it was in Italy, just found some river or something. And they were just hoying these grenades in. It would stun the fish and, and they would uh, float to the surface. I wish that because he passed. Your granddad is an aquatic terrorist. Oh, he's, he's a, <laughs> what, wasn't quite. I he's a, literally Greta, the Osama bin Laden of Finding Nemo. That's what he is. Greta would have liked them, but I tell you what fascinates me. I would love to see the Northeast just after the war, because remember, we'd have had a whole generation of young lads and and the women too, who had been um, through this like fire. And I remember me dad saying that everybody, every bloke, every teacher, every bloke in the street had a war story to tell. And he said to him, his dad was a hero. He'd been in the Eighth Army. He'd fought through uh, Italy. But he said one day, a bloke, this it gets into it again, the coal house roof, it's always in it, right? A bloke turned up to fix the coal house roof, whom my granddad was in awe of. Now, have you just seen that um, Rogue Heroes of the SES on the BBC? My brother's just bought us the book. I need to watch it, but I'm, I'm watching well, so many things right now, and I'm not have the time to watch any well, of them. The SES's taxi service in the western desert like the precursors were the people called the long range desert group and these were these rajis who drove way behind the German lines in the desert blowing up airfields like proper hardcore and this bloke who would come to fix me uh, granddad's roof had been in the long range desert group so my granddad was just in awe and my dad picked that up thinking well, me, me dad's hard as nails and a war hero. And if he thinks yeah, he's hard... And if he thinks this bloke is... He must level, be proper hard, eh? I'd just love to have eavesdropped on that conversation. Um, that would have been amazing. Let's uh, just quickly come back. Uh, we talked about all the little things individuals had to do and so on and so forth. I mean, some people did more than others. Because you have to bear in mind as well, SAS and these groups were, were just ordinary men. They were tough blokes, aye, but they were ordinary men, particularly watching... What my brother has told me about the SAS TV series is that they weren't actually the most elite of elite and they sort of became the elite of elite. Do you know what I mean? But coming back to the things ordinary people had to do is that there were salvaging missions in the Northeast as well. And this is maybe where the rag and bone man maybe first come from. People would go around collecting scraps and uh, apparently didn't really do much collecting these scraps for the war to help, you know, when you're rationing stuff like your metals and stuff, mm. and you need to build your... But it was good for psychology. It made everyone feel like they were contributing oh, a little bit. Pan, is this saucepan to spit for you? The and, like, well, bringing saucepans up, it kind of makes me think of when we were clapping for the NHS. Yeah. <laughs> Working for pay rise, but oh, I'm doing me clap, mate. Well, do me bit, mate, the, mate. We noticed all the railings have gone as well. If you look at a lot of the, um, the Edwardian Victorian houses, all the wrought iron railings had gone. They collected them in, but a lot of them just lay there. It was more of a... Um, 
as you say, a morale boosting thing. Yeah. A lot of them, it, so somebody salvaged a piano and they put it in the Chronicle. They, they gave it to the scrap people and scrap people advertised in the Chronicle for £20, raised a bit of money for the war effort. £20 back then, decent amount, you know what I mean? But what use would a piano be during the war effort? <laughs> like, well, unless you're dropping out of a plane, I can't really see what that would bring. Well, a lot of it, I mean, the um, what was I going to say? The... the Little, I love the little factoids. I remember reading as well that everything, not everybody was into it. Like this, you know, we're all together and not quite because um, when the invasion was, in, you know, when you got like the fall of Dunkirk and the the summer of forty Battle of Britain, people were like bricking themselves and, and they thought the Germans were going to land everywhere, which they, they they never would have gotten near. That's another show altogether. But the Germans would never have managed to land in Britain because of the Royal Navy. But um, we had a plan, right? If the Germans had landed, right, at Hamble. There was a plan for all these private buses, like like a works out, and to put all the home guard in some of the regular troops, because they didn't have enough, because all the British Army stuff was left in France. There was these bus drivers who were meant to do a mobile reserve out the Amble to fight the the Germans. Right? Imagine getting a double decker, the number thirty eight, in the war. Not a tank. Oh, not a jet. Yeah, not a fucking armored fucking ship like that. (laughs) Jets fly off. Oh, we're getting the the sunshine bus lads in the war. Way the bus drivers kicked off. Oh, naturally, you fucking. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, like if you if they're gonna go on strike because they're not getting a ten percent pay rise, they're gonna get on strike for a suicide bombing mission, aren't they? I must admit, I I, I do see the point, and they said that's not what we signed up for. So uh, I don't know what they would have done because the buses wouldn't have taken them. but that, that tickled me. That tickles me a lot. And I think at that stage... Anyway, I'm going in the armor to drop yous off to fight the... Jo- I, I may take you as far as possible <laughs> and then drop yous <laughs> off. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, I think it's probably about time to ra- uh, round things off there. Uh, again, please uh, 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 join the Patreon. Uh, Patreon.com slash Feltnout. Uh, if you join the club, you get a membership card, a handshake and a password. Uh, you help to build the future of North East comedy. You get this podcast before anybody else and you get bonus content from this episode. And this bonus content for my money, uh, I think, is probably one of the most interesting facts. Uh, if you're in the tea side history, I'm going to tell you in the bonus episode why. Sorry, I keep banging the table, but it's very exciting for me. Uh, why? If it wasn't for, just as Bensham wouldn't be the orthodox Jewish hub it is today, if it wasn't for Hitler's invasion of Poland, also why the Palmo would never have existed if it wasn't for oh, Hitler's invasion of Poland. It begs the question, doesn't it? What's, what's, you know, what do we value more? All those lives lost or the po- Anyway, I, tune in to the bonus episode if you want to hear me be a bit more cheeky about that. I obviously don't agree with what it's just a joke, but... There is genuine facts as to why the Palmer would not exist if it wasn't for World War Two. So, so sign up the Patreon if you want to know why. That's a wrap, I think. That's uh, from me and all. She's a big lass and a bonny lass and she likes Fabian. And the cow, how could she put a field? And I wish, I wish, I wish, oh, I wish she was a That was a Feltnout production. To find out more, visit feltnout.co.uk.